This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for a traditional Master of Divinity preview day on March the 27th. Enjoy conversations with faculty, lunch with current students, informational sessions, and a class observation, as well as a campus tour and Tenebrae worship service. For more information on Divinity School and the upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we'll make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and our featured sponsor for the week. For the next few episodes, you will hear interviews with Daniel Burke of CNN, the executive coordinator of Slave Free Earth, an organization fighting against human trafficking around the world, as well as teacher, author, and activist Drew Hart. This week's featured sponsor is brought to you by Shine, Living in God's Light, a dynamic Sunday school curriculum co-published by Minnow Media and Brethren Press. Together, one small step at a time, your church can be a place where children are welcome, known and loved by God, a space where Jesus' good news of peace is proclaimed, a space where small and tall learn together about God's story, a space where children are encouraged to shine. Providing resources for teachers and children ages 3 through grade 8, Shine Curriculum is easy to use with detailed teacher's guides, colorful and engaging student pieces and resource packs, and music CDs for both preschoolers and elementary children. To learn more, visit shinecurriculum.com. Let Shine inspire your church to follow Jesus and grow in faith so that children are nurtured and sent out into the world to shine. Our guest for this week's podcast is the author of The Great Spiritual Migration, We Make the Road by Walking, Naked Spirituality, A New Kind of Christianity, and many other extraordinary books. He is a speaker, an activist, public theologian, and an avid kayaker. He's probably best known for his study of medieval drama at the University of Maryland in 1978. <laughs> uh, he is Brian McLaren. Brian, thanks hey, for joining us. Hey, great to be with you. My goodness sakes, uh, medieval drama, you're bringing back some good memories there. <laughs> well, you know, it shows just how much of a, a grace-filled person you are that you're willing to, to come back on this podcast, because if you remember correctly, I introduced you with this really awkward story, basically proclaiming my fanboy uh nature towards you and my wife's response to it and you were you were so gracious to continue that conversation even this summer when you you met my wife at general assembly uh you kind of gave her a nod of i'm sorry i'm really sorry (laughs) uh that's great well it's good to be with you again and uh, boy good memories from being at general assembly with you all well, maybe we could uh, uh, start right there. Um, you, you joined us uh, last year uh, for a podcast episode, and of course, you are our keynote at General Assembly in June. Uh, what were your takeaways from your time with CBF last year? Well, you know, it was a, obviously it was a great honor to be invited to speak to the General Assembly, and I'm a huge fan of Susie Painter, and I'm a huge fan of so many people in the uh, in CBF world. Plus, I I was invited to speak to one of the very earliest uh, general assemblies. And so I feel like I've had a kind of front row seat on um, the fellowships uh, evolution and development and maturing uh, over these recent years. Uh, So uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very meaningful. Maybe if I could just step one step farther back than that, Andy, and say, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I wasn't raised Baptist. <laughs> this sounds like a joke, but many of my best friends were Baptist. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I feel that 
the role of Baptists, not cooperative Baptist fellowship, but other Baptists in doing harm to our nation and our world is so great. Like I really feel well-meaning, sincere people who are deeply committed to the term Baptist are often at the forefront of being careless about the environment. They're often at the forefront of being hateful toward Muslims. Uh, They're often uh, at the forefront of promoting unconsciously very often, but white supremacy and continuing uh, uh, harm being done to racial minorities. Uh, and uh, and we, we, don't even, we don't even need to mention the harm being done to LGBTQ persons. So the fact that there's a group of Baptists like CBF who are grappling with that history and trying to chart a better way forward is deeply encouraging to me. And I just think it's way more important than the average CBF uh, pastor or youth worker or church planter realizes. Uh, The other thing I'd say is, you know, I get to travel around the world and uh, in many of the places I go around the world, people doing the most creative frontline work are are Baptists. I jokingly say one of the reasons is I think Baptists, they don't need to get permission from too many committees and they believe in doing things uh, without a lot of money and they figure out how to either do it on the cheap or they figure that once they get started, the money will come. But for whatever reasons, Baptists are out on the, uh, out on the front lines. And so for all these reasons, I was honored to see CBF moving forward. And maybe I'll just tell you one thing that I was especially like one of the memories that will stay with me the longest. Uh, I know that CBF has invested a disproportionate amount of money in young people, high school, college age, young adults. And I remember meeting this youth group when I was there who were all there together. And I thought, what an amazing thing that a youth group feels they are vital part of CBF and vital part of the General Assembly. And I thought, wow, here are, here are people with a lot of hope. So I, I, those, those are some of my reflections, recoll- recollections. I love that experience and so honored to be there. Well, that's so encouraging to hear. I will say for that that youth group, most likely it'll take them five to 10 years to realize who they met, and then they're going to be kicking themselves they didn't take more time with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a great time. Well, it's funny, you know, when you talk about being Baptist, uh, it's almost one of those things where you can almost become apologetic for being Baptist and being an ordained Baptist minister, and then kind of taking a turn to, as I introduce myself to folks, uh, to remind them that um, there's hundreds of forms of being Baptist in this world. And, yeah. you know, but we always associate one or two or three. Um, and so I certainly uh, on behalf of CBF, just so grateful for um, those words of encouragement and, and affirmation. Uh, that's so wonderful to hear. Well, I, I know it's not an easy road to walk. And, I, and my sense is that, you know, with, with CBF's roots in the Southern Baptist convention, you know, that term Southern, carries way more weight than most people realize. And of course, to most white people on the inside, it's all good. But to those of us who are on the outside, we see in that word Southern, a perpetuation of an awful lot of ugly patterns from America's history. And, um, and I know that in some ways, CBF wants to keep their connections with SBC folks as close as possible because they want to be there as a bridge when a lot of these folks need a little more breathing room, which is really good. But boy, uh, I, I think one of our great challenges in the Christian religion at large is for Christianity to grow up to be a, a world religion, meaning not just an American religion and certainly not just a Southern or rural American religion, but a religion that grapples with all the challenges of our interconnected world and uh, and I know there's, I'm sure there's resistance. I'm sure there are problems. I'm sure there are challenges, but this is important work. And I, I am, you know, I'm really proud of the, the leaders like yourself who are doing creative work in the Baptist space. I'm glad you're keeping the name. I'm glad you're, uh, I'm glad you're not letting uh, other people uh, totally run it and run off with it. <laughs> Well, I certainly think uh, you ought to write a book around um, uh, white supremacy in the South. Oh, 
You did. It's called uh, <laughs> The Great Spiritual Migration. And if you haven't read it, listeners, uh, you just listen to my review from last time and, and read, read, read this book. I think I'm, I'm turning on my sixth time reading it. Um, oh, well, so much is happening in, in our world. Um, Charlottesville is a microcosm of the undercurrent of systematic racism in America. The political cycle revealed just how divisive we are as Americans, but also as world citizens. Denominations and churches continue to split over theological matters. The issues of tax reform and health care underscore the dividing line and families and churches and communities. Immigration and asylum for refugees gives way into contentious debate and action. The resurgence of national religiosity. There's this major thing called global warming. This is just a, a small sampling of things that we've dealt with in this last year. So what does all this mean for the church? Yeah. Oh my, you know, the first, you, you mentioned Charlottesville right out of the gate there. And as you may know, I, I was invited to be there as part of the peaceful uh, protest, uh, counter-protest, I guess we'd say, in Charlottesville. So that's, every time that name is mentioned, you know, a whole lot of images and experiences and smells, uh, just the smell of tear gas and so on, uh, come back to me. Uh, uh, and it, it really does highlight this resurgence of racism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia, and xenophobia in general. Uh, and uh, I, I must say one of the most disturbing memories of my experience in Charlottesville was seeing how young the majority of the participants in the Unite the Right rally were. These young, white, alt-right guys uh, who are chanting anti-Semitic Nazi slogans. I, I never expected to see Nazi flags being carried in my country in my lifetime, but there it was. So it tells you an awful lot's going on. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, splits going on in our denominations, and often they're framed around biblical authority. Uh, the, the presenting issue is really, uh, is almost always LGBT equality. Um, and in my mind, the underlying issue is actually patriarchy, which is a subject we could talk about if you want. And it's especially relevant because we're having this conversation just a couple of days after the Golden Globe Awards and Oprah Winfrey's uh, speech and this whole Me Too era uh, where, where, issue, people, where women are having the courage to speak about sexual harassment. Uh, by men. Uh, all of these things are, are facets of this big package. Uh, I talked about white supremacy, and we could talk about white Christian supremacy, but at the core of this is white Christian patriarchal supremacy. It's a, it's a way of organizing life around powerful men. And all of these things are so deeply embedded in Western culture. Uh, and, and many people feel, and they go back before Western culture, they go back to, uh, you know, the Iron Age cultures of the Middle East from which the scriptures arise. So uh, a whole lot of people are wondering, can the Christian religion uh, s extract itself from, from patriarchy? Or is belief in God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so inherently patriarchal that Christians actually believe in a patriarchal universe. Uh, and that is, I think, you know, that's one of the many issues that's just in play right now. So you might say that, uh, you know, that, that, the, that, that Christian faith, along with many of our other institutions and religious communities, but Christian faith is in one of its most profound identity crises. Uh, I think more profound than the Reformation 500 years ago. We're having to rethink almost everything, and we're having to do it. It's like an airplane that has to perform, you know, some mechanical repairs while it's in flight, <laughs> and we're in flight, and we're having to deal with these issues. Uh, so that that's part of our challenge right now, and it's happening in church, it's happening in government, and so many other areas. Watching, and I'm sure that your listeners. Uh, you know, are, are grappling with this in different contexts and in different ways. But watching the success of Donald Trump win over especially white people and especially white Christians and especially white evangelical and Baptist Christians, uh, 
it's a, in my opinion, this is a, uh, a pivotal moment. And I, 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 I think it's a time that's going to require us to be, I know this is familiar language, but suddenly it feels very real. Wise as serpents and innocent or harmless or nonviolent as doves. And, uh, uh, and, and it, it, it makes podcasts like this all the more important because people are having to find places to learn, to learn and, and to gain understanding. They can't just go back to their old seminary textbooks. This is, this is a, new, a new challenge. Hmm. It sounds like we, we walk and learn, but also learn from the Holy Spirit and be empowered by the Holy Spirit as we go about um, all these, these major uh, world shifting things happening around us. You know, this is really one of the uh, places I have to say, I have really been struggling just in the last year and a half. I mean, I, early on when Trump was running uh, for the Republican nomination, and I just saw the way that he was unafraid to be cruel or crude, uh, the the way he was willing to mock and degrade other people, the way he was willing to divide in order to conquer and divide in order to gain uh, a kind of demagogue authoritarian status. As I watched that happen, I remember I just had the sick feeling in my stomach that he, you know, he had almost this reptilian connection, a reptilian brain uh, connection to, uh, to people. And, um, and the fact is, uh, maybe as never, certainly as never before in my lifetime, uh, our, our spiritual leaders are going to have to ask people, do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? And I, do you really believe that Jesus is supreme? And do you really believe uh, that the Spirit of God is, is active in the world in spite of so much ugly, horrific stuff happening? And, um, and I've struggled. I, I've at times been really discouraged. And I thought maybe things are going to have to get so much worse before they ever get better. And that's just terribly discouraging. And that's where I get brought back to exactly what you brought up, Andy, which is even if things do get a whole lot worse, I'll be in exactly the situation I'm in now, which is I can depend on the Spirit. I can depend on the Spirit's guidance. I'll need to draw power from the Spirit. And uh, so that, that's the reality in good times and bad. I think the, the thing that encourages our soul so often is to look back and to see that those that came before us also experienced similar trials. And, and we came through those things um, stronger, better. No, they weren't perfect, but um, so, you know, so often um, when we're not sure what's ahead of us, uh, I found, and maybe this comes from, Old Testament story retelling, but we remembered those who came before us and encourages us to continue to move forward. Boy, that's, uh, that's a good word. That's a good word. Uh, we really, and this is one of our great challenges, to identify what I call saints, elders, and protégés. Uh, for me, saints are people who have died uh, from history, and we now have enough of a vision for, you know, looking back to say, here are the people who who we really, really want to lift up as great heroes. Um, and in my opinion, we should be going through a sorting process in that now. Because some of those heroes, they may have been theologically brilliant, but they weren't so great as human beings. <laughs> they weren't terribly Christ-like, even though they were great arguers of doctrine. And I think we have to go back and lift up those saints from the past who weren't just doctrinal warriors, but who really were Christ-like people. And so those for me are saints. Elders are the people who are living, you know, the people who are 20 years older than us or more, who, who lived a life that, that really speaks to us. I, I just had a great gift in that regard. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, um, there's a, a wonderful Quaker writer named Parker Palmer, whose works have meant so much to me through the years. I had no idea he'd read any of my books. And he asked me if I would if I would write an endorsement for his uh, new book that's coming out, which is on aging and dying. And, um, oh my gosh, what a treat, you know, to actually have contact with this, uh, this elder of mine. Uh, so that's saints and elders. And then protégés, I also think that we, 
always have to be looking at the young people who are arising around us, who show extraordinary promise and intelligence and vitality and gift. Um, you know, I, I always want to remind people that Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry and 33 when he'd finished it on earth. And I wonder how many people are paying attention to 30 to 33 year olds today. I like to tell Presbyterians that John Calvin was 19 when he began writing Institutes of the Christian Religion. How many Presbyterians listen to a 19 year old today? So I think it's really important for us to look at younger leaders and see what they're saying and seeing and doing. They're, you know, the, the elders and the saints are important, but the protégés are really important too. Mm. I think it took Calvin another 50 years to finish it as long as that book is. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I happen to know that he, he finished the first edition by the time he was 25. So he finished it in six years and then he kept revising it. <laughs> the rest it, it just kept on writing. <laughs> um, you wrote recently, um, speaking of clergy, um, these are dangerous times. We face a crisis in Christian leadership today, but you are the answer. Clergy, together, we can help build a spiritual movement of just and generous Christian faith. What's your advice to clergy in this difficult time? Uh, the, I suppose the first thing is what we already mentioned, that this is a time where we have to take seriously our own spiritual health. Uh, so that means, you know, for some of us, maybe we've never gotten a spiritual director, but we know something's not right. Well, now's the time to go get that spiritual director. Some of us, we need some more solitude than we're getting. We've got to get that. Some of us, it, we have to have a return to those old practices of daily prayer and Bible reading, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, for some of us, we just need to stop working so much and have a little more rest and a little more fun. But we, we have to attend to our own soul and make sure that we're really in touch with the spirit on a daily basis ourselves. I mean, that's, that's a base for everything. That doesn't mean we're always happy. It doesn't mean we're always doing well, but it means we're not on autopilot. We're, we're awake in, in our, in our daily lives. I'd say the next thing that comes to my mind is that I think we have to give, we have to make room for a shift in identity. Uh, let me say it this way. We've already used the word Baptist. There are all kinds of words out there. Baptist, evangelical, even the word Christian. And we see people doing horrible things in the name of Baptist and evangelical and Christian. And it can really make us despair uh, and, and feel that those words are totally ruined. Well, the, the fact is, people are doing terrible things in the name of science. People are doing terrible things in the name of government. Horrible, horrible things happen in families. Well, do we want to get rid of science, government, and families? No, we just got to realize everything is contested. And so what that, I think, allows us to do is stop taking comfort in saying, I'm a Baptist. I think this is part of what Jesus was getting at in John 6, I believe it is, where he says, you call yourselves children of Abraham. God could raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Your identity as a descendant of Abraham is meaningless your identity as a Baptist, your identity even as a Christian, it doesn't mean anything these days because that word gets, those words get used in so many different ways. What we've got to do is have some serious thought about who do we feel called to be. So that would be my second piece of counsel would be have some serious thought about defining our own identity. Who do we feel called to be? That's part of our own spiritual responsibility. And then third would flow from that, and that would be don't be alone. Find some other people who share that identity. Now, what that's going to mean in, in, for CBF pastor is I hope you can find some other CBF pastors who share that identity. But I wouldn't be surprised if there might be a, a renegade Assembly of God pastor out there or a, a Presbyterian pastor, or, or here might be a shock. You might find a Jewish rabbi who you think, that guy has a lot in common with what I feel God calling me to be. And so I think we need to make sure that we get around some of those other people who seem to be in that same, to, to be responding to that same call. Uh, ironically, it's often within our denominations or whatever that some of the most pain and turmoil happens we have to make sure we've got a little posse of 
of people who we feel they get us and we get them and we're building that shared identity together. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It makes perfect sense. In fact, I, I know you're involved with some cohort work and I think cohorts do this kind of work. They help kindred spirits find each other, sharpen each other, uh, be there for each other. We need to pause and tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Are you struggling with the call of God in your life? Do you feel like you've been called to ministry? Since 1996, Campbell University Divinity School has been providing theological education that is Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our calling is to prepare individuals academically, spiritually, and practically to be faithful and skilled ministers in the world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree options, as well as a doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Campbell University Divinity School is intentionally inclusive of anyone who can affirm and claim Christ as Lord, the Bible as authority, and ministry as a calling, without debating the details. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. We believe that the diverse environment of our school enriches each student's experience by providing an opportunity for meaningful conversations and the possibility of learning from someone who is different from you. The most distinctive feature of our school is the way that our faculty, staff, and students care for and support each other, both in and out of the classroom. We invite you to visit us to learn more about who we are. A master-level visitation day will be held on Tuesday, March the 27th. Individual visits are also welcome. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. We know that that clergy are are charged with shepherding local flocks of people, but, you know, the congregation as a whole, the church as a whole matters. It's the body of Christ. And I wonder if you have an example of, of maybe how a congregation has positively dealt with the changes they're seeing around them? Oh, it's a great question. So I, I spoke at a uh, beautiful congregation up in Seattle a couple months ago. I don't often preach at churches anymore, but the pastor of this church uh, is a dear friend, a gifted young leader, one of the protégés I was talking about before. And at a young age, he was, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. So he was just coming out of his cancer treatment and, uh, asked if I'd come up and speak. So uh, I, I was so honored to be at this church. Um, it's called uh, East Lake Church in, in Bothell, Washington, just outside Seattle. And uh, this is a church, it used to be a huge mega church, and they made some decisions that were unpopular about LGBT equality. They lost huge numbers of people, and they had family members turn on them, you know, you're of the devil, this and that. I mean, they really paid the price, but they, and then on top of it all, after everything they went through, then, you know, Ryan Meeks, the pastor, was diagnosed with cancer. So they, they really went through it. Um, and when I was there, I just felt their heroic spirit, and I felt they survived this really tough patch, and they were back in business again. And I just remember, you know, there, I can't remember if there were two or three services, however many services there were. In between services, I would be meeting people. This person would say, yeah, this is my first Sunday here. Wow, this is amazing. I never knew anything like this existed. And then a few minutes later, somebody else comes up to me and they said, yeah, I've just been coming here for six months. My gosh, I've never been part of a church before. This is the best thing that's happened to me in a long time. And, you know, I, I just felt like, oh. They, they found, they, they had the courage to go through the dark and hard time. And now they're, they're meeting people's needs in a really, really a beautiful and powerful way. One of the things that's interesting about this church is they uh, do uh, almost all, if not all, original music. And I remember standing there thinking, these people are singing with an honesty and a depth and, you know, a rawness that you just hardly ever hear in church. And I, I, anyhow, I, I left there really inspired uh, and not wanting to give up because we need a lot more places like that. You wrote in late 2017, for all its faults, the last Reformation sought to deal with the problems of its day to the best of its ability and faith. 
The next Reformation will similarly be plagued by faults and failures as it engages with the crisis of today and tomorrow, seeking the grace and guidance of God at every step. The last Reformation is officially over. It's time for the next Reformation. Why do you think we're in the next Reformation? <clears throat> my, my dear friend, Phyllis Tickle, who died a couple of years ago, uh, used to uh, speak of a kind of 500-year cycle that we see in the church. Uh, the first 500 years leads to kind of the stable uh, institutional hierarchical church. Uh, then comes the, uh, 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 the dark ages in a time of great challenge. You get a 500 years later to about 1,000, and you have what's called the Great Schism between the East and West a schism of different power centers and a schism of different theological emphases. Um, and then you get to uh, 1500 with the Great Reformation. Uh, uh, some people might quarrel with that 500-year schema, but it does seem like, uh, you know, however many generations 500 years is, that's about enough time for us to start something, strengthen something, and then let something begin to go stale. Um, so. It just seems to me, you know, we go through the seasons. Uh, every year we have these seasons of birth and and growth and fertility and then decline and then death and then rebirth. And I think those are built into life. Um, uh, so I, I think that's a natural kind of, uh, natural kind of cycle. But uh, something I've been speaking about and writing about, gosh, for almost 20 years now, is that if you were to take a list of the things that were going on in the 14 and early 1500s, a new, a new science with Copernicus and leading up to Galileo and then Sir Isaac Newton, a new communication technology with the printing press, new transportation technology with a multi-masted sailing vessel, new weapons technology with uh, Gun, guns and then artillery, uh, new economic model with what we now call uh, global market capitalism. Uh, you know, just one shift after another. I think the Reformation was one part of that huge shift as the world kind of reorganized or grew from uh, the medieval world into what we call the modern world. And a lot of us feel that in this uh, last 50 to 100 years, we've had a similar convergence of huge changes, new transportation technology, you know, from horses and carts uh, to cars, planes, trains, automobiles, rockets, you know, new, new weapons technology. I don't even need to say anything about that. Uh, new uh, economics. I just heard a long thing the other day about Bitcoin and who knows where all that leads. New communication technology, telegraph, telephone, television, then the internet and uh, who knows where all of that leads. You just put all of those together. What would be striking would be if religion didn't need a reboot, <laughs> you know, uh, but in this time of rapid change, well, the fact is religion has always been changing. Um, it likes to tell itself it hasn't, but it always has. And, and I think we're, we're in one of those times where we have to sift through what are the treasures from our past that we dare not let go of, but also say we've also got some baggage that we do need to let go of, and then to welcome the new treasures that we need for the next leg of the journey. Hmm. It might resurrect Steve Jobs with his ego from, from the dead if we say that the iPhone is the Gutenberg printing press of its time. <laughs> That's right. But my gosh, he... You know, you think about the personal computer and then the, uh, and the cell phone, smartphone. We have no idea where that's, I mean, it's only beginning, right? Uh, I just had a long talk with my son the other day about augmented reality, the idea that our phones will be connected to eyeglasses and maybe we'll get either little chips, uh, implanted chips into our ears or, or little implanted speakers into our ears or whether the glasses will have a little speaker. I mean, who knows where all of this goes? It's pretty, you know, we, we tend to think, oh, it's ending. Uh, I think, no, that the real wave of change is just beginning.
a joke about Steve's ego, but Steve is is one of my heroes. Just the the ability to step out and be a rebel and be creative and innovative. Um, so this Reformation thus far, what are its faults? Well, you know, I I'm more think we're still in the labor pains. Uh, I, I don't think the baby has been born yet. So I think it's a little early to talk about the faults. I think what we could talk about now is the, is the pains because giving birth is really painful. And so there've been a lot of pains and, you know, it's interesting in, in physical birth, there are contractions. And so there are intense periods of pain and then the pain lets up a little bit. And I think a lot of us can look over the last several decades and just see one contraction after another, you know, worship wars, uh, women in the church, some are already through the contractions over LGBT equality. Others are still in the middle of them. Um, uh, you know, all, all, we, all of these contractions, but I think they're giving birth to something that is still remains to be seen. Um, and uh, uh, that's a little tough. I think we wish we knew exactly what it was going to look like. And as I said before, I'm not sure whether things are going to have to get a whole lot worse before they get better in, in a dramatic way. But, uh, but I think this is my dear friend, a wonderful Sikh uh, activist uh, from the Sikh religion, uh, Valerie Kaur says, dare we believe that this is the darkness, not of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb. Beautiful way to say it. Hmm. What are its triumphs so far? What do you believe its triumphs will be? Well, I think what uh, is where we're going to be when we're through this is um, I think we're going, men and women are going to be equal. I think uh, we've still got a long way to go on that, but we can see the beginnings of that already, um, early steps in that direction. Uh, when you think that for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, the Christian religion, like almost all religions, was totally male dominated and males were given a sort of divine right. We, we uh, Baptists and other Protestants spoke of the priesthood of all believers, but really in practical terms, it was the priesthood of male believers. So I think, you know, we're going to have equality for women. I think we'll get through this LGBT equality thing, and that will be s sort of a given. Um, but I, I think more important, the Christian religion will rediscover the treasure that we have in Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom of God. I think we'll will come to understand, this will be, I think, one of the most precious, uh, will understand the gospel of the kingdom, that, that the gospel is not an evacuation plan uh, to get people, people's souls out of earth into heaven. It's a transformation plan. If we rediscover that, if we can see that as the theme from Genesis to Revelation, as well as the core of Jesus' life and, and ministry, that will be an incredible triumph. Um, I also think... Uh, uh, the, the great uh, Harvard theologian Harvey Cox said he believes that we're entering the age of the spirit. And I think we're going to rediscover, and it's already happening through the work of Dallas Willard and the rediscovery of uh, monastic and spiritual practices. I think we're rediscovering ways to help people open up the depths of their own being to the spirit of God. I, I, I just think we're at the beginning of a very exciting triumph. Uh, in in that in that area, uh, um, and I'll mention uh, maybe two others. One is I think we're going to have a triumph. The way I wrote about it in Great Spiritual Migration is I think we're gonna we really will convert from organized religion to organizing religion. And I, I just as an example, the Methodists right now are organizing to make malaria history, and you know there's a really good chance they along with others, are going to succeed. But what churches can do when they get organized to make a practical difference, I think we're going to see that. Uh, and we especially need to see it in relation to caring for the earth. Uh, our government is failing us. Our government is making every stupid decision they can possibly make in regard to caring for the planet. And there's no end in sight. Uh, our churches are going to have to stand in the gap. And I think there could be a real triumph there. If people are interested in that, my dear friend Jim Antal has a book coming out very soon uh, called Climate Church, Climate World, I believe is the title, but fantastic book uh, on that subject. Um, but um, uh, 
The last one I'll mention is I think we're going to have a triumph of learning how to play well with others, meaning uh, we're going to understand how you can be a deeply, passionately committed Christian and in a way that makes you not an opponent or antagonist, but the best friend of a deeply committed Muslim or a deeply committed Jew or a deeply committed Buddhist or a deeply committed atheist. I think we're going to learn how to hold our Christian identity in a way that helps us love the other rather than fearing or oppressing or distancing ourselves from or dehumanizing the other. That would be a good set of, uh, a good set of steps forward, I think. <laughs> well, it's fascinating to think about um, the generation that comes after us, how they will study us. I mean, we look back at the 16th and 17th century Reformation, and there were these clear ideas, you know, sola scriptura, sola fide, and on and on and on. There was these tremendous shifts in the landscape of the church, and the creation of endless Christian expressions, the, the free church, the rise of the common man yes. and woman. Um, I would, might add, continued religious violence. But there's so many beautiful things that came out of it. And it's so encouraging to think about what this next generation will do with the work that has been started within our generation. And then the generation after that, and generation after that. And we cannot help but to center our hope on Christ. You know, you don't have to respond to this, but I've, I've always found it so fascinating for people that, that critique and criticize your work, um, how much they don't focus on just how much you are centered on Christ and how divisive uh, and how much discord they sow into this world uh, by simply opening their mouths instead of being centered on Jesus. And so I hear you talk about these things and it gives me hope. It gives me hope as a follower of Christ. It gives me hope as a local church pastor. It gives me hope as a person who gets to work with a global organization that we are moving in a positive direction. It's just going to take a lot of hard work and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Listen, uh, Andy, I, I, I really think what you're saying is true. And I, I think one of the things that's easier for me now, I, I, I'll be uh, 62 this year. It's way easier for me now than it was at 32. It sounds ironic to say this, but I, I think we have to realize this thing is going to take some time. Now, you, you would think at 32, I would have said, oh, I've got a lot of time. Um, uh, and at 62, I don't have so much time left. But I, I realize now, no, the, the need to have everything fixed overnight or fixed, you know, a, on my time schedule, it, 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 it's terribly counterproductive. Um, so we need urgency because this is no time for complacency and it's no time for fatalism. Uh, Faith is not fatalism. This is a time to feel responsibility and empowerment. Um, but our urgency has to be a patient urgency uh, because we have to do our very, very best at this moment. But, um, but whatever we succeed at isn't going to fix things. <laughs> uh, it, it's an ongoing challenge, an ongoing struggle. But I think you're right. That there are so many encouraging signs. and. Uh, and I, one of my little mantras, you've already heard me say it, uh, is that sometimes things have to get worse before they can get better. And uh, that is, uh, uh, when I do get discouraged, I try to flip back to say, oh, okay, yeah, it, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to pretend it's not getting worse. These five things really are getting worse. But you know what? Maybe when they get worse, they'll really get better. And then that, that opens up the opportunity for all of us to be people who rush in when the opportunity is there uh, to make things better. And to keep our voices raised to say, what's going on right now is not normal, it's not good, and we're not gonna pretend like we are happy with it. Hmm. We have to remember that the cross came before the resurrection. It really is tempting, isn't it, to try to skip that over? But uh, Jesus couldn't skip it. Even Jesus prayed, if there's any other way than this way. Uh, but no, uh, it was not possible. And so remember, he, it's one of the places where he says, if it is possible. Uh, but it was not possible. So he, uh, he endured the cross. How does it say it in, in, uh, in Scripture? He endured the cross and was careless about the shame. He just didn't give, he didn't care about the shame. Um, and he focused on the joy that was set before him. 
I, that's the tone that you've set in this. And I think that's a great tone. Hmm. Now you, um, your fingers have got to be tired from all the writing you do. Your voice has got to be tired from all the, the speaking and coaching and mentoring you do, but you're working on this other project called Convergence Leadership Project. Tell us more about it. Well, one of my feelings at this moment, and I think it's one of the shifts as we talk about a new reformation, um, so many of the forward-thinking, forward-leaning, creative people, uh, they're a small minority across many denominations. But if you were to get them working together, not leaving their denominations, but collaborating across denominations, I think great things could happen. So the shorthand, that the way I say this is, I think the movement, the spiritual movement that we need in the Christian faith has to drive from what I would call progressive and post-evangelicals, uh, what I would call missional mainliners, what I would call progressive Catholics, and then uh, the, uh, the black churches, the Latino churches, the peace churches that have a commitment to uh, to spiritually resource social justice, that group of people across denominations and traditions have everything in common and they really need each other. So this uh, organization called Convergence uh, started a few years ago. It was really birthed by uh, another wonderful organization started by a gifted young woman named Cameron Trimble, the other organization was Center for Progressive Renewal. And uh, so they helped launch Convergence to try to support that kind of building of movement across groups and traditions. So I've been dedicated to that. And um, this last year I've been involved with helping pilot this project called Convergence Leadership Project. And what we're trying to do is create an in-church cohort-based training program where a pastor and staff and lay leaders could say, we can't all go off to seminary together, but in a sense we can bring a year of spiritual learning and development to us and we can go through this together. So that I'm developing the curriculum for that. It's an online-based curriculum uh, that I'm very, very excited about. So that's Convergence Leadership Project. Another sister project to that that I'm very excited about is led by a dear friend of mine named Brian Sergio. It's called the Convergence Music Project. And what they're trying to do is find the kind of music that we need to sing going forward. Uh, and that's another whole huge subject. But boy, beautiful songwriters coming forward, great music being produced that I think is part of this needed reformation. What are your hopes for convergence? Well, my hope is that we really could build that kind of uh, trans-denominational movement uh, and that we could uh, help provide the resources that uh, that kind of movement needs so that then a vital, forward-leaning, creative, deeply rooted Christian spiritual movement could reach out in love to uh, parallel movements that are happening in many other uh, religious traditions as well as in secular society, because I believe the Holy Spirit is out at work all over the place. And we, our job is, uh, is to try to join the Spirit in the Spirit's healing work in this world. I know you've got something else spinning. Any other projects, any other books on the way? Well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, three things that are in the works. Last year, one of the funnest things I've done in a long time uh, was I collaborated with another writer and with a graphic, uh, with a visual artist on a children's book. So that book we hope will be out by uh, later this year. And it's called Corey and the Seventh Story. And of all the things I've done in my adult life, it's, uh, I just feel like this is one of the closest to my heart. I just got bunch of proofs of the artwork from the artist the other day, and I'm so excited about it. So that'll be, uh, uh, you could call it a book for children to read to adults, <laughs> uh, because adults, I hope, will get a lot out of the book too. So that's called Corey and Seven Story. I'm working on a science fiction novel that I'm really excited about right now. And uh, it's, I haven't felt this motivated about a new writing project in a really long time. So that's really exciting. And then uh, I later this year will be starting a book. I'll start writing it on site, um, a book about doing theology in the Galapagos Islands. So that's, uh, I, I want to write about the intersection of faith and scripture and evolution and the ecological crisis and 
uh, things that really come together in the Galapagos Islands. So I'll, I'll make my second visit to the Galapagos Islands and, uh, and be working on that book the second half of this year. Well, if you need somebody to carry your bags on that trip, I'm a really great bag holder and I'd be well, more than willing to go. I got to tell you, one of my little secret hopes is if at the end of uh, writing this book, uh, I, if other people wanted to go, I would do everything I could to try to help organize something like that because it is a magical place and it's a once in a lifetime place. The fact that I'm getting to go twice really feels like a special blessing, but it's, uh, it's a place that you kind of wish everybody would get a chance to go to at least once. Well, the country of Ecuador is, is beautiful. I've actually been there eight times on mission immersions, but we uh, never, ever made it out to the coast or the Galapagos. So, uh, so I'm jealous. Well, uh, it's, it is an amazing country. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that will come out the middle of 2019. Cool. Well, if you want to stay connected with Brian, check out brianmclaren.net. Of course, you can find him on social media, Twitter and Facebook at Brian McLaren. And if you want to check out more information about Convergence Leadership Project, it's convergenceleadership.org. Brian, uh, it is absolutely humbling that you're willing to, to come on and have this conversation again. Thank you for um, the wisdom and insight and the hope of what's to come. Uh, and thank you for your brilliant work for the kingdom of God. Well, Andy, I feel the same way. It's an honor for me to be part of your work and uh, anything that we can do to encourage church planters and innovative church leaders around the world. Uh, man, nothing better than that. So thanks. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 